Our reading is from Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 through 28, verse 10. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that impostor said while he was alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came to him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You may be seated. Well, if you have your Bibles, open them or turn them on to Matthew 27 and 28. That's where we're going to be camping out this morning. And it probably doesn't come as a surprise that on Easter Sunday we're hitting pause through our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're focusing on a text that talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most central doctrines that we have. There are are a few doctrines that our entire faith rises or falls on, and the resurrection is one, one of those doctrines. The Apostle Paul went so far as to say, if the resurrection did not happen, then we should be pitied above all men. So, Last week I was trying to explain to my kids what a big deal Easter is, that it, that it is one of the most important doctrines, that this is one of probably the most important Sunday in the Christian calendar, to which they replied, well, then why don't we get better Easter presents? <laughs> so that's a good question. That's a, it's a good argument. Maybe we should pull back a little bit on Christmas. No, 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 we're, we're good. We, we like what happens on Christmas. But so often, you know, in the, in the Christian world, the resurrection of Jesus Christ can become so familiar that it, that it goes from the miraculous and becomes more mundane than anything else. I was reminded uh, a few years ago now, really of the miraculous nature of Jesus Christ's resurrection on a plane over Europe. And this is a story that I, I know I told in September, but we've about doubled in size since then. So half of you haven't heard the story. I was in a plane with my best friend and next to him, was sitting a Brit, a Brit uh, he was talking with and kind of getting to know, and he asked this guy uh, a little bit about who he was, where he was from, and what he believed. And this British guy said, well, to be really honest with you, I believe some really weird things. And my friend said, well, I'm, I'm very interested. I would love to know the weird things that, that you believe. He said, well, I believe the moon is really a spaceship. 
and it is inhabited by fourth dimensional creatures who watch us. I googled this. This is a real thing. It makes flat earthers look very reasonable. (laughs) And so my friend, you know, wanting to comfort him said, well, if it makes you feel better, I've got some weird views too. And he said, well, what are your weird views? He said, well, I believe that Jesus Christ resurrected and one day he's going to come back and then everybody who believes in Jesus is going to be resurrected too. And we're going to have new resurrected bodies and we're going to live forever on a new resurrected earth with him. To which Spaceship Moon Guy says, now that's weird. (laughs) And I appreciated that he would call it weird because to everyone, I think the resurrection needs to be either weird or miraculous. There's really no room for anything in between. And so this morning, I want to look at this passage, at Matthew's account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I kind of want to see three acts, three scenes in this. We first see the fear of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the part of the Pharisees. Then we see the announcement of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we see the call in the resurrection. So that's where we're going to go. We'll start with the fear of the resurrection. This is chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. The Pharisees feared what they called the last deception. And I think they really did understand what Jesus was talking about. They understood that he was predicting his resurrection. And I think these Pharisees, they, they knew that would be bad. I mean, they, they saw how many problems this now dead Messiah had caused them. They could only imagine what would a risen Messiah do? How many more problems would that cause us? And we see the Pharisees, they come up with a plan and they... They, again, they stoop to many low places to accomplish their plan, plan, which I guess shouldn't surprise us because they've just committed murder. But now they're wanting to go to Pilate and they're wanting to enlist Pilate to help them in their plan to suppress the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when they go to Pilate, you can see the sliminess just in the way that they, they address him. They go to Pilate and they call him sir. Pilate would have been somebody that they hated, somebody they reviled, somebody they they called a dog, somebody they referred to as an enemy. Pilate was a, a Roman errand boy who lorded over the Jewish people. They hated him, but when they needed him, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they go to him and they say, sir, with all the false humility before they bring him lies. But we also see that the Pharisees, they had another opponent that they needed to enlist, and that was the Sadducees. And and here's where I think it gets really interesting, because I think the Pharisees, they really did believe that Jesus might resurrect. You know, they had seen Jesus Christ heal the sick. They had seen him uh, heal the blind. They'd even seen him bring people really back to life. You know, and they they didn't deny the miracles that he was that he was doing, they, they, attributed him, they attributed them to Satan. <laughs> so they really believed that he could do some things. And, you know, I don't think the Pharisees were really all that concerned with what the disciples might do. I, I mean, at this point, the disciples are a sad bunch. <laughs> if they were really concerned about what the disciples might do, then they would have had them arrested along with Jesus Christ. And I think my theories are confirmed after this passage when Jesus has resurrected the Pharisees aren't trying to get to the bottom of the truth. (laughs) They aren't trying to prove that this really didn't happen. What are they doing? They're paying people to lie about it. 
They're not concerned with truth. They really believe that Jesus could resurrect and they want to make sure, do whatever they can to see that that doesn't happen. But the Sadducees would have laughed at that because the Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection. And you probably remember from Sunday school, that's why they're sad, you see. Ah, that's pretty good. (laughs) They needed to come up with a better plan to enlist the Sadducee help. And so they went to the Sadducees and they said, hey, we're concerned that the disciples, they might steal the body and start telling everybody that the resurrection is real, that Jesus resurrected. You don't want that to happen, do you? And Sadducees said, no, no, we're, we're on board. We'll go to Pilate with you. So they all go to Pilate. They ask him for some help to guard the tomb. And what does Pilate say? You have a guard. Okay, so there there are two theories about what's going on here. Neither change the meaning of the text, but one theory says that that Pilate is giving them a whole Roman guard. He's saying, take the guard, have the guard. There's another theory, and I fall more into this camp, that he's saying, you already have a guard. You already have Roman soldiers that we've given you for temple security. Go use those guards. Do whatever you want. Secure the temple as you desire. And in that theory, I hear this mocking tone from Pilate. Because there's always been a little bit of hesitation on the part of Pilate as Jesus has tried. He wanted to let Jesus go. The crowd demanded that he be crucified. And I think in Pilate's mind, he's thinking something like, listen, you have a dead body or a risen Messiah The whole Roman army can't change either of those. You already have a guard. Go do whatever you want with that guard. So they secure the tomb with an allotment of Roman soldiers, which to them had to seem like the easiest job ever. We're going to watch a dead body for three days. Little did they know what would happen. But before we get to that part of what happened, I think it's important that we Look at the fear of the Pharisees and understand two things to it, exactly what it is and exactly where it came from. So the fear that the Pharisees had was that they were going to lose power. They had political power, they had religious power, and they had seen Jesus in his earthly ministry slowly chip away and erode at that power. And they could only imagine what was going to happen to their power if Jesus really does resurrect from the dead. The deeper question is why? Why would they care so much about that power? And the answer is their pride. Their pride. They didn't care if Jesus really is who he is. They didn't care uh, if God had a plan for their life, if God was directing them in a different direction than maybe they thought God, than maybe they thought things should be directed. At the end of the day, they had a kingdom that they were in charge of and they really enjoyed that kingdom. They enjoyed being in charge. So when Jesus comes and says there's another kingdom and another king and it's not you, the Pharisees didn't like that at all. And it's easy for us to look at their plan to thwart the resurrection of Jesus Christ and laugh until we begin to see all the ways that we do the very same thing. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, they are two very different kingdoms. They have different ethics, they have different values, they have different currency. They operate in radically different ways. Things that are important in one kingdom are not important in the other. Things that aren't important in one kingdom are radically important in the other. So what is the difference at its core between the values of the kingdom of this world and the values of the kingdom of man? 
I think you can boil it down to two things. The main value, the main ethic, the main goal, the main currency of the kingdom of man is self. And the main value, the main ethic, the main currency of the kingdom of God is love. Scott Sauls, a pastor I really admire, he says it like this. In America, success is measured by material accumulation, power, and in the positions that we hold. In Jesus, success is measured by material generosity, humility, and the people whom we serve. And I want you to hear me say, in a genuinely sympathetic way, that it is very hard to be rich in one kingdom and all of a sudden hear that you're poor in the next that you have invested so greatly in the kingdom of self and to hear that all your accomplishments, they're worth nothing in the kingdom of God. That is hard to hear. It's hard for the Pharisees to hear and it's hard for us to hear. And, and the picture I have in my mind is of a, of a man in the southern states at the end of the Civil War. Someone who has invested all his finances in the Confederacy. He has Confederate money, he has Confederate bonds, and then the union wins and all these things he had worked so hard for, he's holding in his hands, are literally worthless in the kingdom of the United States of America. That's a hard thing to grapple with. But every time we suppress the idea of the kingdom of God to live fully in the kingdom of self, we are in a very real way denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are exactly like the Pharisees in the story. And if that's what we want to do, we can do it. We can continue to deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but what the Apostle Paul tells us is that there will come a day that God will hand us over to those desires. I have to give Jen Wilkin credit for this picture, but Paul goes so far as to describe us as clay in the hands of the father, clay in the hands of the potter. I don't know how many of you have made a clay bowl before, but I took pottery at the prestigious Boone High School many years ago, and I know how to make a clay bowl. You put clay on a table and it spins and your hands form it as it spins. But what happens if you take your hands off that clay? usually it will spin out of control and destroy itself. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying and what we can learn from Jesus' teaching is that if we want the kingdom of man, we will get it and we will spin out of, our, out of control because the Father will loosen his hands and we will get what we, not, what we want, not what we truly long for. That was the fear of the Pharisees. Let's now look at the announcement of the resurrection. This is verses, chapter 28, verses one through seven. The news that Jesus had resurrected, it came in two forms. It came in an earthquake and an angel. So we'll look at those two things. First, the earthquake. I have a weird confession to make to you. I have always wanted to experience an earthquake. Angela knows this. She hates that I, I want to do this. Not a big earthquake, just a little one. I just want to feel the ground rumbling under my feet. Angela and I went and we spoke at a conference last weekend in California, and I was wondering, could this be it? Could I get to feel just a little, a little earthquake? 
That wasn't it. I didn't get to feel an earthquake. And I know from everything that I hear, to be in a really significant earthquake is a terrifying experience. I I heard of some missionaries in 2015 who were in the big earthquake in Nepal. And they said it looked like the ground turned to rubber and it was just moving and shaking and rolling. And I would imagine it would be an absolutely terrifying experience to watch everything that we've built come crashing down. But we see that earthquakes over and over again in the, in the course of human history, they are a way that God makes known his might and his power. We know that an earthquake immediately preceded Moses' receiving of the law. We know that an earthquake was associated with God's revealing of himself to Elijah. We know that an earthquake uh, happened when the early believers, they were praying for boldness and the Holy Spirit came upon them. We know that there was an earthquake when Jesus died and now there's an earthquake when the angel's coming to announce his resurrection. But I think the important question to ask is why does God do this? You know, why does God want to come and, and bring earthquakes to say something about his power and his might and his glory? And I think there are probably multiple reasons, but I think the main reason is to show us how fragile this kingdom of man is, how easy it is for it to come crashing down, that God not only can, but one day will bring it all down. I mean, this is what Hebrews 12 is saying. The author of Hebrews says in 1226, at that time, and he's referring to Moses here in the Exodus, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, once more I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens as well. I think when you bring the glory and the presence and the majesty of God into this fallen kingdom, both of them are not gonna be able to stand. One is going to fall and we see that just a little bit of the presence of God, just just a little bit of the announcement of the resurrection of Jesus gives us this picture of a God so mighty that our entire world will fall. An announcement of a resurrection that will bring in a new kingdom that cannot be shaken. A new kingdom that will never fall. So that's the earthquake. That was one part of the announcement. But then secondly, we have an angel on the scene. An angel who came down whose appearance was like that of lightning and he rolled away the stone effortlessly and he sat on it. And I'll be honest, I think the angel was showing off a bit by sitting on it. I don't blame him for it. I mean, you look at all the efforts that many men went to to conspire and then to move this big stone over the tomb and then to seal it off so that Jesus can't get out. And then here comes this angel who effortlessly rolls it away and shows them that Jesus is already gone. I think I'd show off too. But it's worth noting what's not going on here because I grew up most of my life thinking that the the angel came to let Jesus out. Did any of you grow up with that idea? I don't know where I got it, but I thought the angel was coming to let poor Jesus out of the tomb. And obviously poor Jesus isn't waiting in the tomb for the angel to unlock him. The angel isn't coming to let Jesus out. The angel is coming to let us in. That's what's going on. And I love the two different audiences that get to see this angel and experience this earthquake. First, we have the guards. Their reaction is horror. They're terrified. They're in awe. And and these aren't your average run-of-the-mill rent-a-cops here. I mean, these are trained and tested Roman soldiers. They would not have been prone to fear, but they're 
according to the text, literally paralyzed in their fear. Their, their legs are trembling in the same way that the earth is. They're quaking in their boots. They're in horror of what they're seeing. But then you have the two women. You have the Marys, and their reaction is really different. And so the Marys, they're going up there. We don't have any, any real reason to, to think they're anticipating the resurrection. It seems more likely that they're going to visit his tomb, just like we would go and visit the grave of a loved one. But then they see the angel. They see the open tomb. And what is their reaction? It isn't terror. It's comfort. Comfort and joy. And so you have two sets of people. They're watching the same set of events transpire. And they have two very different reactions. And here we see a picture of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. You're going to have two groups of people in this world. You have one group who's going to see Jesus and be elated and have hope and feel comfort. And according to the Bible, there will be a whole other group of people that how, whose terror will cause them to want the mountains to fall on top of them. And I think what's really incredible about this story is that you see all the efforts of the Pharisees to prevent the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to prevent rumors of this resurrection, all of their efforts actually only serve to fuel the resurrection. Because now, because everything they've done, setting up the Roman soldiers, guarding the tomb, you can't say that Jesus didn't really die. He, you know, he just, he resuscitated later on and came out, and that's why he was walking around. You can't say that the Marys went to the wrong tomb. You know, you can't say that the disciples stole his body. None of these things are possible anymore. You can't even say that this story, it began to develop a few hundred years later because that day, the Roman guards who were hired to thwart the resurrection were down in the town propagating it. So all their efforts to prevent Jesus from resurrecting actually fueled the resurrection. And I think this is a really comforting idea that God uses the forces that oppose him to actually propel his kingdom forward. Because we live in a culture that is rapidly changing. Uh, Many of you remember living in a culture friendly to Christianity. And now increasingly around the United States of America, our culture is at least apathetic to Christianity and in pockets becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity. So this idea that God uses the forces that oppose him to propagate his mission, that should be a very encouraging thought. It, it makes me think of our brothers and sisters in China. You know, right now the government is giving rewards if people will turn in Christian activities. They're rewarding people for turning Christians in. And Christians in China are now talking to Christians all around the world, and they're saying, would you please stop primarily praying that we will be safe? We're not saying don't pray for our safety, but we're saying don't make that your primary prayer. Pray that we would be sustained and that God would use the forces that are opposing us to expand his kingdom. And God is doing that around the world on really never-before-imagined scales. I mean, most of us don't realize, because we live in this small little United States of America pocket, how vastly the kingdom of God is growing around the globe. Do you realize that almost half of every Christian who has ever lived is alive today? Half of every Christian that has ever lived is alive today. That's how massively our faith 
is expanding, how massively the kingdom of God is expanding, even as all the countries around the world begin to oppose it more. It doesn't matter how hard the world conspires to thwart the news of Jesus Christ. Jesus will triumph. And this isn't just news to be heard. We see thirdly in this passage that there is a call. There's a call to all of us in the resurrection. And this is going to come in the form of verses 8 and 9. The call for all of us in the resurrection is the same call that the angel issued to the women. Do you remember what it was? Come and see. Come and see. That's the call. Come and see. Look at this resurrection. Consider this resurrection. See what it might mean on your own life. And, you know, I have had friends who have looked at me and said, well, yeah, Jim, if I could see, then I would believe. If I could see what they saw, I'd believe. To which I would say, I don't think you would. And I, and I would illustrate it like this. When during the, the race, the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union got the first man into space. They beat us. And when he came back, Nikita Khrushchev very famously said, we went to space and we did not see God there. To which C.S. Lewis just as famously responded, to think that you're going to go to space and see God is like Hamlet going to the attic of a house and thinking he's going to find Shakespeare. <laughs> that's the famous part of C.S. Lewis's debate. But there's, there's another part that's not, that's not as famous that I think is actually more poignant and, and definitely more to our point. C.S. Lewis said, to some God is discoverable anywhere, to others nowhere. Those who do not find him on earth are very unlikely to find him in space. And what we see is that over and over again, people see Jesus, they see angels and they don't believe, and other people see Jesus and see angels and believe. It isn't a lack of information that is our problem. It isn't a lack of sight. It's a heart that doesn't want to believe. That's our problem. And so, you know, you have all these great arguments for the resurrection. I mean, really solid historical arguments. And, and if, if you want to hear them, I would love to sit down and tell you. But let me tell you, in all my years, in some very lost places, in Europe, college campuses, in trying to reason with people about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I have never, ever seen these arguments actually change someone's mind if they are dead set on not believing. Because the problem, it isn't a lack of information. It's a heart that doesn't want to see. That's all of our problem. That was the Pharisees' problem. And the call in this text, it is, it is really twofold in the come and see. Come and consider this information that we have by the grace of God documented and secured for 2,000 years. Consider the information, but also consider our hearts. As the reason we're not believing is because we don't want to. We like our kingdom. As the reason that we don't believe ultimately pride. But if you're here and you look at this, you come and see and you say, yes, I do believe. I do want this to be true. I do like the idea of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am willing to follow him. If that's you, then there are three implications in this text on you, on all of us. The first we see in verse nine is that we will worship. Verse nine says, and behold, Jesus met them and said greetings. And they came up 
took a hold of his feet and worshiped him. So our modern word for worship, it comes from an older English word that, that said worth-ship. Worship is a matter of worth. God wants us to see his infinite worth. He wants us to see him as more worthy than our jobs, than our money, than our hobbies, than our addictions. He wants to be even more worthy than, than our families. He wants us to communicate with all of our thoughts, all of our words, our actions, everything we do, that he is the most worthy thing in the universe. And he doesn't want us to do this because he's narcissistic. <laughs> he wants us to declare his worth because it's true. He knows how worthy he is and he wants us to experience that worth, to cherish that worth, to enjoy that worth. So if we come and see and believe, we worship. Secondly, in verse seven, we see that we will also go and tell. Listen to what the angels say in verse seven. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. So at the end of this chapter, Jesus expands on this go and tell. It's not just to the two Marys. He tells everyone in what we call the great commission. Everyone is to go and tell. And what are we to go and tell? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the call on every believer. And in just a minute, we're going to see an amazing story of God's grace in baptism through someone whose name I can't even say right now because she's from such a closed part of the world, there are security issues around her baptism. But what I love about her story is she isn't somebody who would just walk into Orlando Grace Church. (laughs) When I met her, she didn't know what Easter was. She came to faith because someone in our church went and told. She came to faith because someone engaged her with the truths of Jesus Christ. And we are now in an age where the day of come and see church, it's over. It's over. It's foolish to think that at the end of the day, what we're going to do to reach this city is we're going to spruce up Sunday morning to make it to, make it to where non-Christians are going to want to come in here. And I want non-Christians in here, but the day and age that we live, it requires us doing the very heavy lifting of developing real relationships, engaging people where they are, telling them about Jesus and bringing them into the community of believers. That's our call to go and tell. And I love this picture here. The angel doesn't just say go and tell. The angel says, Jesus is going before you. And I know the immediate context is Jesus physically going to a location. But I think we can draw from that context that every time that someone comes to faith, Jesus is going before in some way. There is no corner of orthodoxy that, has, that disagrees with this. Every aspect of the Christian world agrees. For anybody to come to faith, Jesus in some way has to go before. So when you came to faith, whoever it is that shared the gospel with you, Jesus went before. Whoever it is that will come to faith through you, Jesus goes before. When I was, uh, when I was a new believer at Florida State, I invited a fraternity brother to come to a, like a Christian campus ministry weekly meeting. And, and I'll be honest, I, I, was, I was really nervous. I felt like I was really putting myself out there to invite a fraternity brother to this Christian meeting. And then we sat down and we began to listen to seriously, probably the worst Christian message I have ever heard. I have no idea what he was trying to communicate. And I'm just sinking in my seat, thinking that I, I put all my chips on the table, cashed them all in, and this is what he comes and hears. And just when I'm about ready to not be able to endure it anymore, 
my fraternity brother leans over to me and he says, this guy is awesome. (laughs) Are we listening to the same guy? Jesus went before. (laughs) I have seen the worst evangelistic efforts produce real and lasting fruit because Jesus goes before. And this should be incredibly encouraging and motivating in our desire to see our friends and our family and our coworkers and our neighbors come to Jesus Christ is that he's gonna go before it. Do the best you can. Love them, know them, tell them. But at the end of the day, it's Jesus who goes before. So we worship. We go and tell. And thirdly, the third implication of Jesus resurrecting is that we will too. So Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, he refers to Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection. Okay, I didn't grow up in an agricultural <laughs> you know, world. I'm a city boy. So those words, first fruits, they were lost on me for a long time. It took God taking me all the way over to Italy to understand what first fruits really meant. And so when Angela and I were trying to learn Italian, there was a sweet Christian family. They they invited us to go live with them for a season, a few days, it could be a week if we wanted, and to live with them so that they could help our language learning process. They just happened to live in a vineyard in Chianti, in a villa. We all have our crosses to bear. So <laughs> we went to this villa in Chianti, and they had two conditions for us. One is that we had to work. I worked out in the field. She worked in the home. And two, that we could not speak English between us the whole time that we were there, which was pretty cool because we argued a whole lot less when we couldn't speak in English. (laughs) But it was on that vineyard that I learned what first fruit meant. And and I remember Mr. Amirabile telling me that, that the first grapes that were being produced, they were indicative of all the fruit, all the grapes that were to follow. So if these grapes were sour, the rest of the fruit was going to be sour. If these grapes were sweet, the rest of the fruit was going to be sweet. Whatever is true of the first fruits is also true of the rest. And so by Jesus being the first fruit, they're saying whatever is true of him is also going to be true of us. We will resurrect. We will have new bodies. We will be sinless. We will live forever on a new earth. That's what it means that Jesus is the first fruit. We too will resurrect. My kids ask me, what, what does it look like? You know, what are our resurrected bodies going to look like? What can we do? What kind of cool things can we do? I, and my answer is simple. More than you can imagine now. And I can imagine a whole lot, all right? I can imagine a chiseled orange theory body that can eat whatever it wants and go fly around the universe. I can imagine good sleep <laughs> where nobody's waking me up in the middle of the night for something. I can imagine kind of walking through the occasional wall just because I can. I don't know, I think it's, but I can imagine that, so I think it's going to be even more than that. But more important than what we will be able to do with our resurrected bodies is who we're going to be able to do it with. And I'm not talking about being reunited with loved ones, although that's going to be wonderful. I'm talking about being with the risen, resurrected Jesus Christ in our own risen, resurrected bodies, where we get to be eminently close with the one of infinite value. That's the hope of the resurrection. That's the hope of the Christian faith. And we are now about 40 minutes closer to seeing that day.
But we can't fall into the trap of thinking that the resurrection is simply something that's in the future. We can't think that the resurrection only has future implications. Because according to the Bible, the resurrection, when we believe, it starts now. The resurrection begins in our hearts. It begins in our souls. We begin to have new consciences, new desires. The resurrection, when we believe in the Holy Spirit coming inside of us, it changes us on the inside. And that will be fully consummated when Jesus comes back. We will have our fully resurrected body. But we have to realize that the resurrection starts now. Because if there's no internal resurrection now, there is no external resurrection later. That is a central, central piece to the Christian hope. This is why when we baptize somebody, I will say, buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. This is what resurrection power does. And so we can't think that that the resurrection, you know, it isn't simply a starting place. It isn't simply a finish line. The resurrection is the whole of the Christian faith. Every aspect of the Christian faith is wrapped up somehow into the resurrection. So we need to ask ourselves when we look at a text like this is to what extent are we being changed by resurrection power? Because if we feel despair, if we feel like there's no hope, if we feel like we don't have significance or value, or if we feel like we have no control over our sin, it's a resurrection issue. There's something about the risen Christ that we don't see and we're not applying and embracing and and experiencing in our own life. The resurrection is the cure to all, all our failings, all our fallings, and the cure to our separation from the God that we so long to be reunited with. That's the hope of the Christian faith. And for every one of us here this morning, whether we've been walking faithfully with Jesus for 40 years or whether we're just now considering his claims for the first time, all of us can experience that resurrection power significantly in our lives if we just want it to. So I want to finish by praying for that. I want to pray for all of us this morning that we would be marked by resurrection power, that we would worship, that we would go and tell, and we would deeply know and embrace the hope of our future resurrection. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful. We are so thankful for the resurrection of your son that you would come and provide such a way for us. You you don't let us just, uh, that you let us into the kingdom at all is one thing, but we don't come on our hands and knees crawling. You resurrect us in glory and you don't even look at our sin because of Jesus Christ. And I pray that this morning that resurrection power, it would go to every part of who we are because we know you don't want just two hours of us on a Sunday. You want all of us all the time. And so we pray that this resurrection power by the power of your Holy Spirit would be true in us that we would look at the story of Jesus' resurrection and we pray that the miracle inside us would happen of, of making us want that to be true. That we would desire Jesus more than our pride, that we would desire your kingdom more than our kingdom, and that we would desire you to reign over our lives instead of us. We ask this in Jesus' perfect name. Amen.